brought your New Testament this morning, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to study verses 4 through 6 here in just a moment. If you didn't bring your New Testament this morning, repent and bring it next time. All right? This past week has been a blur uh, for me. I am thankful that, that Lori has been with me uh, this past week. I told her last night she would be ordained this morning. I think she still came. I heard her laugh. Where is it? Where is she? There she is. Okay. There will be some things that I said last week when she wasn't here I won't be saying today. All right. But I'm, I'm thankful that uh, Lori is, is here this morning. If you had not had a chance to meet her yet, be sure and, and, and do so. I have purchased my first Paris, Texas coffee mug. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of getting there. And where I bought the mug... I think it was at the olive oil store, kind of a cool store. But what I really wanted to buy was one of those t-shirts that said, Paris, the second largest Paris in the world. I have, I have said that everywhere I've been since 1992. And I never really knew if it was true or not, but it's got to be true since it's on a t-shirt, right? So, anyway... I, I do want to call your attention to one announcement in uh, our bulletin. It's on page two under family news. Uh, my first visitor this past week was Coach Mike Long. And he came by and introduced himself. And I said, oh, Coach, I know who you are. You don't know me, but I do know who you are. And we kind of relived some uh, Paris High basketball history uh, together. But he shared with me uh, this, this very cool ministry that he is a part of, Praying for Students. You'll see it uh, on page two. And he informed me that a number of you have been involved in this ministry in the past, and it might be that your student that you prayed for uh, graduated, and so you might need a new student and I think if you call the office, Tanya will be uh, more than happy to, to help connect you with a student. I will be signing up uh, for this particular ministry. And he shared with me uh, over the course of several years now, uh, there, there have, have been fewer students in detention uh, at our three uh, high schools that are involved in this. And a lot of neat things and a lot of cool things are, are happening uh, through this prayer ministry. And uh, I told him I would be sure and promote that uh, this morning. So uh, please sign up for that if you hadn't already uh, been a part of this, this very important ministry for our community. Uh, it's just a way uh, that we as a church uh, can be involved in our city and our community. And I can't think of any better way than to be praying for uh, some of our students uh, at our area schools. It has been a week of orientation. Uh, Kim and Tanya and Jared, for the most part, have been patient with me. I'm, I'm constantly asking questions. I know I'm going to mess this up this morning, but I'm going to do my best with 
Okay, good. We're off to a good start. But please, please be patient as a church. I'm, I'm eventually going to get there. I'm, I'm older now than I was in 1985, and so it, it just happens a little slower uh, these days. And so are some of you. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians in about 62 A.D., Ephesus had a population estimated at 250,000, making it either the third or fourth largest city in the first century behind Rome, Alexandria, and possibly Antioch. Ephesus was a major port city on the Aegean coast. It was perhaps most famous for being the home of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders uh, of the world. Paul had originally spent uh, time in the city some ten years earlier, toward the end of his second missionary journey. We can read about that at the end of Acts chapter 18. He returned a short time later during his third missionary journey, uh, Acts chapter 19, and stayed over two years. If Paul entered the city from the harbor, he would have walked down Harbor Street, maybe a half of my, a mile, having disembarked from his uh, ship. The first thing he would have encountered uh, in the city of Ephesus Okay, Kim, it's not, there it is. He would have seen the theater. And Lori and I just recently returned from a trip to Turkey, uh, Greece, and Italy. And we visited a number of the ancient uh, cities that we read about in the New Testament. Everyone had a theater. Ephesus was the largest seating almost 25,000 people. And as, as Paul walked down Harbor Street, he would have seen that massive theater. He would have then uh, turned back south to his right, and he would have entered the Agora, the marketplace. Uh, maybe during the two years that he was in Ephesus, uh, he might have sold some tents there in uh, the marketplace. Had he entered the city from the southeast through the other main gate, one of the first structures he would have encountered uh, was this smaller theater that seated about 1,500. Uh, this particular theater served two purpose, uh, purposes in the ancient city of Ephesus. It was, first of all, a concert hall. That's what it became in the evening. During uh, the day, during the week, it is where uh, the city council chamber uh, met. As he continued on into the city, he would have walked by this monument, uh, the Mimimus Monument, which recognized a man by the name of Mimimus, who uh, in about the 3rd century B.C. had been a very important civic leader in the city of Ephesus. He would have continued to walk west down uh, Curitus Street. And he would have encountered a number of shops as he worked his way. And most likely, he would have said hello to Lori Johns in the pink hat as he continued on in uh, to the city. Ephesus was such an important city in the first century. 
And I think it was one reason why Paul wound up staying there over two years. And, and we know from the book of Acts that Ephesus became an early center of Christianity. And from Ephesus, uh, Paul sent out co-workers, or we might refer to them as missionaries, who evangelized uh, that area of Asia Minor. Paul now sits in a Roman prison and writes the, this letter that we call Ephesians, which seems to be a circular letter intended for several churches, with Ephesus being the primary uh, church. And if you remember, way back on May 27th, uh, I began a short series of lessons from Ephesians chapter 4. And the purpose of Ephesians chapter 4 is to demonstrate that the church is to be a community, a, a family, a, a gathered assembly wearing the name of Christ and has this workable formula for unity. And on May 27th, we studied verses uh, 1 through 3 where Paul shares with us a proper spiritual environment in which Unity can be maintained. Now, why is unity important? Well, he tells us in verse 3. Because it is something the Spirit of God creates. And because God's Spirit creates this unity, it is our responsibility to maintain it. And I, for one, am thankful, if you'll look to my right, the second prong of our vision statement is unity of believers. And that unity of believers begins right here at the Lamar Avenue congregation. And the importance of, of us being united as a body, as a family, as a community. Uh, gathered believers who once again... Share this bond through Jesus. Well, Paul continues in chapter 4. And in verses 4 through 6, uh, a very familiar passage for all of us. I can remember when I was about 10 years old, my youth minister, Tom Waycaster, we used to meet Jared at 5 o'clock before the 6 o'clock service. We called it Young People's Meeting. And Tom uh, encouraged us to memorize a number of scriptures, and this was one of them. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So in verses 1 through 3, having given us this, this um, list of certain attitudes which creates again an environment in which our unity can be maintained, in these verses he provides for us a theological basis or what we might call a doctrinal foundation again to help us maintain this unity that the Spirit of God has created. And as I've just read... There are what I refer to as the Magnificent Seven, or if you don't like that, seven beliefs of highly unified Christians. And this, this of course, isn't all 
the, the, the complete body of doctrine, we might say, that, that are, uh, is important for us to believe and be convicted of. But Paul seems to choose seven that by their very nature can create a unified uh, system, if you will, again, to help us maintain this unity. These seven items that I just read, of course, are preceded by the word one. And this sevenfold repetition of one emphasizes this theme of unity. In each case, one expresses both the uniqueness of the item as well as its foundational value for unity. All seven items declare the reality that there is only one gospel. And to believe that gospel is to enter into this unity that the uh, Holy Spirit creates. And notice uh, in verses 4, 5, and 6 this Trinitarian structure which anchors this theological platform that Paul shares with us. The Spirit anchors verse 4. Jesus the Son anchors verse 5. God the Father anchors uh, verse 6. And so we have these seven, again, very foundational uh, items of belief, convictions that can create and help us to maintain uh, this unity the Holy Spirit uh, has created. One body. It's interesting that, that Paul would begin with one body. Uh, if you remember on May 27th, uh, one of the points I emphasized that for Paul, church was a big deal. And this one body he is referring to is the one church. He's already emphasized that in Ephesians chapter 1. And so again, his, his whole point is unity. In this, this one body, this one church, that uh, those of us who wear the name of Jesus were now a part of. This family, this, this community. And I don't think it's any accident that the second item is the one spirit. Uh, verse 3 uh, that we studied a few weeks ago. You know, again, we made the point. It's this, this one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that creates this, this unity that Paul is, is emphasizing. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Ephesians some 11 times. And, uh, you know, you, you could just go to the book of Ephesians and develop a pretty good theology uh, of the Holy Spirit. We, we know from chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is, is that initial deposit that, that seals us, that marks us as belonging to God and belonging uh, to Jesus. Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 30, that our behavior can grieve the Holy Spirit. And again, I, I think he's, in the back of his mind, he's, he's thinking about unity. And when we are not loving each other, and we are not exhibiting the attitudes that he mentions in verses 1 through 3, uh, with each other, that grieves God's Spirit, uh, because the unity is being affected. He then moves to one hope. And I, I like to, to refer to hope as kind of the underrated, maybe even neglected, 
triad, Paul's triad of faith, hope, and love. We emphasize love a lot and we emphasize faith a lot. I'm not sure we always emphasize hope. And the hope that we have in Jesus is this, this confident expectation that God will fulfill uh, his purposes. And this, this hope is a particular hope because it accompanies God's calling. Uh, again, if, if you remember from May 27th, uh, Paul has already emphasized this, this idea of being called. Each one of us who wears the name of Jesus has answered this universal call from God to become a disciple of Jesus, to become a part of this uh, community that he seeks to keep uh, unified. And we're going to come back uh, to hope at the conclusion of this lesson. We then come to verse 5. Again, Jesus anchors verse 5. And Paul mentions one Lord. Lord occurs 26 times in Ephesians. 20 of those occurrences are found in chapters 4 through 6. Now, this, this isn't always exact, but Paul's tendency is to use Christ in reference to Jesus in context about salvation. But when he's talking about how we live, when he's talking about ethics, when he's talking about conduct as Christians, he tends to use the word Lord. This word describes a person who has the power of control. It combines the two elements of, of power and authority to denote an absolute ruler, an undisputed uh, owner. Jesus is Lord. Began to become a, a catchphrase, if you will, kind of a, a creedal statement for uh, Christians in the first century and beyond as a polemic against Caesar. Many early Christians lost their lives, literally, because they confessed Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar as Lord. One faith then is mentioned in verse 5. Uh, there is some debate whether faith, Paul is using faith subjectively or objectively. Uh, if he's using it objectively, he's referring to our faith in Jesus at least this morning, and, and you're going you're gonna to hear me say on a number of occasions, on passages where there's some discussion, uh, I have the right to change my mind, okay? But this morning, I think he's using it more in a subjective sense, faith as the content of faith. Again, the gospel message, if you will, something that we are to believe, something that tenants, that we hold very dear to us, again, thinking in this, this theme of unity. Uh, one baptism, of course, uh, connected to uh, the one Lord. What's kind of interesting, uh, for Paul to mention one baptism, you, you could argue that there are several baptisms, or there were several baptisms present in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus, as, as we're going to see here in just a moment, was uh, a highly pagan city. And a number of deities were worshipped in ancient Ephesus. And uh, a lot of, of the religion surrounding these, these pagan deities included pagan washings. 
Uh, we know in Ephesus there was at least one synagogue, uh, perhaps several. Uh, in a city that large, there was a very significant uh, Jewish uh, population. And the Jews practiced uh, proselyte baptisms or proselyte uh, immersions. Uh, no synagogue has been recovered yet or discovered, I should say, in the city of Ephesus. But only 20% of the ancient site has been excavated uh, to this point. Lori and I had uh, an opportunity to visit Israel in February of 2017, and we uh, were able to visit a, a number of ancient Jewish synagogues, and every single one of them had a, what we'd call it a baptistry, a huge uh, pool, if you will, where uh, a proselyte would go in and, and be immersed. Uh, Jews, of course, would also go through periodic cleansings and purifying uh, ceremonies. Most of these mitzvahs, as they're called, were located very near uh, the synagogue. And then we also know from Acts 19 that John's baptism was present. Remember when Paul entered Ephesus the second time at the beginning of his third missionary journey, he encounters, Luke tells us, some, some disciples who believed in Jesus, but they only knew John's baptism. And so, again, I think Paul very intentionally is trying to clear up some things. The only significant baptism is Christian baptism. Uh, immersion into the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then uh, verse 6 concludes with one God. And as I mentioned a moment ago, several deities were present in Ephesus. Um, I forgot to include this slide in the presentation this morning, but uh, not only was it the home of Artemis, and by the way, there's only one single column left of the temple dedicated uh, to Artemis, but there were a number of other deities. There was a, uh, a monument dedicated uh, to Nike, uh, the goddess of victory. And um, I wanted to play a little game with you, and at some point I'll, I'll show you this slide. But if you look closely, if you know nothing about Greek deities, you could recognize that it was Nike because there's the big swoosh. The big swoosh. So those of you who wear Nikes, do you realize it's named after a Greek goddess? But we're not going to go there uh, this morning. Uh, anyway. So Paul boldly proclaims that there's only one God. Some, someone has identified perhaps as many as 43 deities that the Greeks and Romans worshipped. And Paul says, no, there's only one. He is our creator. And he has provided a savior for us through his son, uh, Jesus. And Paul concludes this brief little, again, doctrinal platform, if you will, by emphasizing through three simple prepositions, the glory and power of our God over suggests God's power. He is over his creation. He is over us as his people, as the body of Christ. The preposition through suggests God's providence, that, that God is working in his creation. He is working among his people through us. And of course, the preposition in suggests God's presence. 
And we see, as I mentioned a moment ago, throughout the letter to the Ephesians, uh, an emphasis upon the Spirit. And God indwells us and is present in our lives through the Spirit's uh, indwelling. So with that brief discussion of uh, these seven ones, let me, let me suggest four things this morning. By way of, of application, again, concentrating and emphasize the unity of believers. Uh, and this is a reminder from May 27th. Unity must be evident and concrete. In other words, it's not just something we talk about. It's, it's not just a theory. It, it is something that needs to be displayed in our lives. And one reason that is, that is so important is not, not only to, to keep us together as a family, but to be a powerful witness to the community in which we live. All right? Now, Paris is, I, I would imagine, the, the, the size of, of our community. If we're fighting among us, everybody knows it, right? I mean, word gets around. The coffee shop, Walmart, wherever, okay? I mean, that's just the way bad news works, okay? And, and so it's very important for us not to only just talk about unity, but to visibly uh, experience it among ourselves and demonstrate it, display it, to the community in which we live. You know, it's kind of like that, that old thing, you know, I can talk about my bird dog, but you can't. All right? As, as bad as the bird dog might be. Okay? And, and, and so, if, if things are discouraging here, I mean, you may think, think it, don't tell anybody. All right? Come talk to, to me. Maybe. You know, unless it's, a, no, if it's about me, certainly come and talk to me. I got my own coffee cup now. I'll buy another one for you. All right? But just the importance of demonstrating unity, that it's, that it's more than an idea or a concept. All right? Number two. Number two. Unity, in this text, Paul says, is maintained not only from how we behave, that was verses one through three, but also from what we believe. Okay? And, and again, I, I don't think Paul is saying these are the only seven things that there is no discussion, no compromise. Right? There, there are some other important things. Nor is Paul saying that there aren't some things that we're probably going to disagree about. I mean, Romans 14, 13 and 14 and 15 are, are kind of about that. Uh, Romans uh, 8 as well, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, uh, where Paul deals with, with some issues where they're matters of opinion, okay? He's, he's not talking about those things or, or saying that there aren't those things that exist. We're going to disagree about some things. But in our physical families, we, you know, we, we disagree, right? And we talk about it and fuss at each other about it, but we're still family. But, but these beliefs are non-negotiables. I mean, they're doctrinal foundation kinds of things and things that we should be convicted of, which leads to number three, 
and, and again, I, I hope I've shown just a little bit how the non-Christian public would have considered these statements as narrow-minded, biased, and even scandalous. As Christianity continued to spread, Christians were eventually labeled as atheists because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in perhaps as many as 43. They only believed in one, and they were persecuted uh, because of that. There, there were other little, little rumors that were spread to discredit the Christian faith. They were referred to as cannibals. Why? Because of the Lord's Supper language, eating the Lord's body, partaking of, of His blood. Of course, we understand that, that language. And I think this is an important point for us to think about because we live in a culture in which our convictions are considered scandalous. And often in this culture of relativity, truth is relative, right? we need to understand, Paul doesn't, doesn't use the word truth, but I, I think he would include one truth in his list of ones. Again, one gospel, uh, one faith, if you will, the content of which comes from God through Jesus that we have obeyed and hopefully have made a commitment to and are convicted of. Right? And so it's very important for us to uphold truth and to to be, to be very convicted in our beliefs. Now, as chapter 4 continues, we'll, we'll see this in two weeks. There's a way to speak the truth, right? We do it in love. And often maybe we've been a little guilty of, of not speaking that truth in love. But that's in two weeks, okay? Right, but being willing to... To, to speak up when we need to and, and understand that there will be all kinds of accusations made against us. And then finally, and I want to go back to hope here. Is there a clock in here? That's dangerous because I don't wear a watch. All right? And I don't see Jill Ferris, so I don't, I don't know how much time I have left. But our hope, okay, again, I... I'm tired of hope being third, all right, behind faith and love. They're all equal, okay? Our hope should create tenacity within us, not tentativeness, all right? Now, think about how we use the word hope. Well, I, I hope it happens, right? Anybody, anybody with me there? Yeah, well, I hope it happens. I hope it happens, I know it's going to happen. You know, just, just two different attitudes kind of dictates how we then respond, whether we're tenacious or tentative. All right? Let me, let me give you a personal example. Okay, I'm going to have to do this quickly. All right. So Taylor and his wife, our youngest son, lives in Malibu, and they weren't going to get to come home for Christmas. And so early November, Lori and I decided, okay, let's, let's fly out and spend a few days with Taylor and his wife, Katie. So we booked a flight on Christmas night. 
to fly to L.A., and then the, that, that was a Monday, uh, if you remember, and then fly home Saturday evening, December 30th. Okay, bought the tickets, paid for, done. All right. Well, there was a football game that arose after that, played at the Rose Bowl on January 1st. It happened to involve a team, maybe from Oklahoma, that I'm interested in. All right. Well, Taylor calls me and says, Dad, we got to go to the Rose Bowl. So I, I get tickets weren't, tickets to the game weren't the problem. It, it was the, the flight arrangements, okay? But I, I was pretty confident we were going to win, okay? And so that's why I was tenacious. My hope was at an all-time level, okay? And I excitedly, I'm pursuing all kinds of tickets, and everything is, is almost sold out immediately, plane tickets. And, and so, you know, we talked about extending our stay, and that was going to cost so much and all sorts of options. So what, what I finally had to do, Lori and I fly home with the original flight on, on the 30th. I get up New Year's morning, at 4.30, I fly from Oklahoma City to Houston, Houston to LAX. P T Taylor picks me up, and we drive straight to the Rose Bowl. All right. the, the soonest or quickest flight home was a red eye on Wednesday night. All right. And, if, you know, most of you probably know that my hope was shattered. Oklahoma lost in two overtimes. I was disappointed, you know, even when I kind of got home and told people about it, I was even a little ashamed about it. I, however, there, there was a little silver lining. On Wednesday night, Oklahoma City Thunder were playing the Los Angeles Lakers, and so before Taylor took me to the airport, we got to see the three quarters of that in Oklahoma City won, so it wasn't a complete waste. But our hope, we can bank on it. And Paul says, I, I appreciated Brother Brad reading Romans 5, uh, 6, and 7 earlier. Uh, or, yeah, if he'd have read verse 5, he would have read, our hope does not disappoint. Some translations read, our hope does not create shame. That's the hope we have. And, and because of that hope, we can be very tenacious with our faith. And we can live convicted lives. Lives that can make a tremendous impact on our community. And now we're back to unity. The unity of the church is essential to God's eternal purpose. Unity must be cherished and cultivated. This unity of believers, the second prong of our vision statement, must be visible and demonstrated to the world and especially to our community, the city in which we live, of Paris. So, how convicted are you this morning? Are you a part of that one body? Does that one spirit indwell you? Do, do you have a hope that will not disappoint or make you ashamed?
Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? Have you been baptized, immersed into his name? Are you convicted of that one faith that Paul speaks about? And do, do you acknowledge God as your creator, sovereign of the universe? If not, I assume the baptistry is warm. Right? One thing I haven't done yet is to check the water in the baptistry. There may be someone here this morning that needs to be baptized into Jesus. Some of us just may need to be recharged, and you can do that at your pew. You can come forward, and we can pray for you and encourage you as much as we can. We are family. We're a community. Let's show it. Let's live it to each other and to our community. Won't you come while we stand and sing?